Hello to all my fellow 101 History uh, podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you have had a good start to your uh, week. Today um, is a very um, tragic day for the University of Virginia. Although I didn't attend the University of Virginia, I've uh, grown up with the uh, university all of my life. It's been a second school to me. Uh, both of my parents went there. Um, but the reason why it's tragic is because um, three football players sadly um, lost their lives in a incident that uh, tragically um, that that tragically um, happened. They um, about twenty five uh, football players were coming back from uh, D.C. Uh, Washington D.C. Um, I'm not sure which event it was, but it had to do with something academic-related. They uh, were coming back, and a former uh, football player who was still enrolled at the school at, uh, decided to take matters into his own hands and uh, shoot at, um, at football players. And three of them sadly died. Uh, as a matter of fact, I um, saw one of them play uh, back at the start of the season, uh, Lavelle Davis Jr., the point I'm just trying to make here is that, um, you know, life is very fragile and we can't uh, take life for granted regardless of our age. But it's just very sad to know that um, that the University of Virginia today lost um, three uh, fine uh, students who had uh, bright futures ahead of them. Ahead of them. Uh, they were uh, very uh, talented um, athletes. But of course, as we know, there's more to life than, say, just playing football. But they did a lot of good, not only on the field, but off the field as well. And there are uh, two other players who are fighting for their lives as well. So we need to keep them in our thoughts and prayers. Um, I mean, we just never know anymore. I'm not trying to sound political at all, folks. Believe me, that's not the intentions of this message. It's just uh, something that hits close to home. Um, I don't live too terribly far from Charlottesville, probably about an hour, 15 minutes at most, give or take with traffic. Uh, my alma mater uh, being Bridgewater College up in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia uh, lost two um, campus police officers back in February. Uh, thank heavens no uh, student or faculty member was held at gunpoint, but, um, but the officers... Um, sacrifice their own lives to protect everybody else on campus so uh, no matter how big or small an institution of higher learning may be um, we just have to be reminded that um, we have to be very vigilant of our surroundings so it's just important to not to not just so much take life don't take life for granted but just uh, know that uh, no matter where you go you just have to use some extra caution uh, extra judgment and just be vigilant with your surroundings, which oftentimes can make a difference between uh, life and death in this um, unstable world that we live in. But anyways, uh, I'd like to um, reshift my focus on what we have been discussing um, with this uh, podcast uh, book topic series uh, being The Other Side of the Night, The Carpathia, The Californian. In the Night the Titanic Was Lost by Daniel Allen Butler. We are now uh, going to be focusing on the second part of the uh, podcast segment, 
which I have um, dubbed the following. Part 2, SOS, Save Our Ship, the Titanic. So in this uh, podcast uh, segment of Part 2, we're going to learn whether or not any ships, most notably the Carpathia, I should say, we will find out if the Carpathia makes it in enough time to be able to rescue the Titanic. That is, not just so much come to the aid of the Titanic, but to save those whom were not able to make it aboard a lifeboat. Now, of course, I know, we all know, sadly, that the Titanic sank on the night of um, April the 15th, 1912, in just a few short hours after midnight. However, what we need to learn are, are essentially her final hours. We need to learn how she went about frantically reaching for help. We need to learn how how her um, pleas for help, how do I say it? Yes, there were ships who did respond. Okay, so at least we know that we can get a sense now that, okay, maybe more than one ship did respond, but we need to know how she went about doing this process. We will also learn how the Carpathia and her crew, under the guidance of Captain Rostron, went about um, coordinating other uh, matters and then having to go above and beyond to um, keep the public at bay. And what I mean by public is her passengers, because it would just be a matter of time before her passengers would start asking questions such as, hey, why are we going in a different direction? Weren't we supposed to go um, overseas to uh, Europe? Why are we all of a sudden turning around? Those are just some of the things we're going to find out here uh, in this next uh, podcast segment. But one thing I do know is that if I keep on rambling about the what-ifs, or not so much the what-ifs, but um, about information that we're going to be learning about, then what would be the point in my even telling you all this uh, next podcast segment? So I think it's time to get the show on the road and be prepared for what lies in store. Our first uh, leadoff question will be the following. What was the first order of business for the Carpathia's crew? Her first order of business was to get all the lifeboats out and have them be readied, or rather I should say placed for lowering. So Carpathia already knows, obviously, that the Titanic has struck an iceberg. They know they already have some inclination that Titanic is on borrowed time. Yes, Captain Rostron is aware that he is 58 miles from Titanic, but he has a sense of duty. He has a call of duty, I should say. He and his crew are going to, to do. They are going to do the impossible. They are going to go above and beyond the call of duty by going 58 miles from where they are southeast of Titanic, and go in opposite direction from a southeasterly course all the way up north. And, of course, they are aware that there are going to be some hazards along the way, and we'll get to those hazards here in a little bit. But we did learn from the previous uh, podcast segment how uh, Captain Rostron and his crew went about um, having to uh, cut all the heat 
in uh, from uh, people's uh, rooms um, to use the heat and other sources of energy to enable the Carpathia to go from a maximum speed of 14 knots with with a new uh, target of say 17 knots. It may not seem like much, but but in order to uh, reduce uh, the amount of other um, sources that are being used for other purposes, they are in need of taking uh, drastic measures. So the Carpathia crew believed it was necessary to have lifeboats placed ahead of time for lowering, uh, given the chance of uh, Titanic's lifeboats might be deemed insufficient per the number of people aboard her. So in other words, Carpathia is probably aware that Titanic only has 20 lifeboats. I mean, I think it's fair to say that even Cunard line vessels are aware of, of uh, say, companies like White Star Line and their policies. They may not know everything, but even Cunard Line knows very well about the British Board of Trade's regulations, given that any ship that exceeds 10,000 tons would have to be required to carry at least uh, 16 lifeboats, and then whatever additional space they have aboard the ships behind, rather, rather I should say aboard a ship that whose uh, tonnage exceeds 10,000, if they have the room to place another four boats, the ultimate goal is to ensure that it comes out to at least 75% capacity for passengers, for all passengers aboard. The only problem, though, is that the British Board of Trade never envisioned a situation where Titanic, being, being over 10,000 pounds, would be right at her maximum threshold capacity in terms of having passengers aboard. You know, she's designed to carry just over 2,400 uh, passenger and crew, and here she is right over 2,200. So, I mean, she is really near the uh, threshold mark. But the problem is that with 2,200-some passengers, she would only have room at best for 1,178 uh, passengers to be able to have access to get on a, um, a lifeboat if those lifeboats are filled to capacity. That means that half of her crew will uh, perish, and given that she's already struck an iceberg, it would be fair to say that half of her crew not only so much half of her crew, but half of the passengers aboard are also on borrowed time. Borrowed time, yes, might mean a few hours. And we might be surprised to find out here in a little bit that borrowed time might not necessarily mean just being relegated to hours. Did Titanic's uh, wireless operators have success with getting through to other ships just after midnight on April the 15th. Believe it or not, um, Harold um, Bride and uh, Jack Phillips, uh, Titanic's wireless operators, did have uh, success in getting through to other ships. At 12.34 a.m., they were able to get in contact with the German liner Frankfurt. Frankfurt confirmed that she was 150 miles away. That's further than uh, Carpathia. Olympic, being Titanic's twin sister, was able to get through. But as good as it was 
that uh, Titanic's wireless operators were able to get through to her twin sister ship being Olympic, the bad news is that Olympic was 500 miles away. So it's one thing to be a couple hundred miles away, but to be 500 miles away, I don't see how in the world Olympic could be able to come could be able to come to the rescue of her sister ship. I can't imagine what that must have been like for the crew of the Olympic knowing that her sister ship was was in trouble and we're not just talking trouble um 101 trouble but uh, trouble that goes beyond 101 a matter of life and death. At 12:45 a.m. on April the 15th, Titanic sends out her first SOS, save our ship. It was the new distress call that took the place of the standard CQD, all stations distress. Jack Phillips would go about sending uh, the new signal intertwined with the standard CQD call until power itself was no longer available. So for Jack Phillips, his mission is to stay in the wireless room until he has exhausted every option there is. And that also includes knowing that you have remained in place until the power is no longer available. Well, think about it, folks. You know, six of Titanic's 16 watertight compartments began uh, to experience flooding. So it's fair to say that more than likely other compartments will get flooded. And if other compartments are flooded, that's also not only going to impact the inside of the ship, but given that the ship, it's us, it's um, starboard side was listing at five degrees that uh, Thomas Andrews detected um, just before midnight. And her um, bow at the uh, forefront was uh, sinking. It was already starting to sink at about a two degree uh, mark. That should tell you right there that it's just a matter of time before even more of Titanic's ship will start coming out of the water. In other words, the more water that gets um, over, that gets flowed into her uh, watertight bulkhead compartments and she's overflowing, she's not going to be able to stay afloat. She's no longer considered buoyant, so she's going to start, her, um, her hole is going to start coming out from above and making its way eventually into the... Um, in an upward inclination position to where it's almost as if she's um, reaching for the sky. It's very frightening. I mean, if you've seen pictures or uh, drawings of what of what actually m most likely happened on April the 15th, 1912, it's fair to say that this was no gentle uh, sinking. This was no um, calm, peaceful thing that would have just happened to a ship. No, this was a terrifying thing. You know, if you're a passenger on a lifeboat and all of a sudden you're watching people high above falling from the ship because they know that there's no way that they can be saved standing where they are. I mean, it truly is a matter of life and death. What official orders had Titanic uh, Captain Edward Smith given come 12.20 a.m.? He requested Titanic's passengers be put into lifeboats. Women and children first. That's what he said. Now this gets to be very tricky. And it's also going to be very tense. 
Captain Smith first off places First Officer Will Murdoch in charge of the starboard's um, the starboard side boats. He gives Second Officer Charles Lightoller the port side duties. I didn't know this until I read the book that we are discussing, but I was always under the assumption that that all the officers knew what Captain Edward Smith's um, command was when he said women and children first. To me, that would mean women and children first uh, being the only ones who, were, who would be allowed to enter aboard a lifeboat. First Officer Will Murdoch interpreted, in quotes, women and children first as them having top priority when a boat was in process of being loaded. Okay, that, that would make sense as having women and children uh, being the top priority. There is a problem here. Officer Murdoch could not persuade any women, regardless of whether they were married or single, to come forward. So therefore, Officer Will Murdoch allowed husbands and wives to board boats together. If no more married couples were standing by, Officer Murdoch gave permission in allowing a fair number of single men to enter the lifeboats. Wow, it's almost as if Officer Murdoch is breaking protocol. But at the same time, we also have to keep this in mind. There, another reason why a lot of passengers, most notably women and children, there's another reason why they are not they're hesitant to board to, to go aboard a lifeboat. Well, there are two reasons. Number one, if the woman is married, as I said a moment ago, she does not she's very hesitant on uh, not wanting to leave her husband. The second part of the problem is that there are many people, whether they are a married couple or single, they are in uh, disbelief over the fact that that there are those whom have already said that the Titanic only has maybe no more than two hours to live. Yes, people know that she struck an iceberg, but so many of these people aboard the ship don't even realize the magnitude at which um, the iceberg's damage has caused this ship. They don't realize that the ship is listing. In other words, it's losing its buoyancy to where it is tilting five degrees on its starboard side. That just means in a matter of time, the ship will eventually rise out of the water. And that, to me, obviously is much worse than what it's already at its present moment. So many people just don't have a clue. But then again, um, but then again, Captain Smith and his crew have not um, done a very good job of telling passengers, hey, look, I understand that you may not want to leave your loved one, but the problem here is that we are sinking. Whether you want to believe it or not, you need to get aboard a lifeboat. But for many people, they just could not accept the fact that this ship was sinking Many of them believed that somebody would come to their rescue. Many believed that if they got on a lifeboat, on a lifeboat, they would eventually be able to to be brought back. In other words, 
in other words, they would get raised back up on the boat and go about um, resuming uh, normal activities. Talk about a little bit of ignorance and talk about a, a lot of, um, what do you call it, stubbornness. Talk about a lot of um, wishful thinking. As for uh, what Will Murdoch did, um, I do have to give him credit for being a little flexible. On the other hand, Charles Lightoller was reckless. Did second officer Charles Lightoller interpret women and children first differently versus what first officer Murdoch had done? Uh, the answer is yes. Lightoller viewed saying, Lightoller viewed the saying to mean women and children only as just them on the lifeboats, no exceptions. Lightoller often was referred to as someone who took matters into his own hands when deciding where the boundary between child and adult um, was to be placed. And this happened on lifeboat number four, on Titanic lifeboat number four. Charles Lightoller caught Jack Ryerson, a teenage boy, climbing over the upper edge of Titanic's port side, only to say the following, that boy can't go. Jack Ryerson's father responded by saying the following in quotation, of course the boy goes with his mother, he's only 13. Lightoller allowed Jack Ryerson to enter lifeboat number four, but other passengers heard Lightoller whisper the following in quotes, no more boys. Well, I tell you, Charles Lightoller, when something doesn't go his way, he lets people know about it. And it's all, I would, if it were me, would I find it difficult to work with him? Yes, not so much because of this incident, but we're going to learn some other stuff here soon about uh, Charles Lightoller that really, um, that really um, I felt was uh, very disturbing, not only about Charles Lightoller, but, um, but um, with some of other, with some of the other officers of uh, Titanic's. I hate to say this, uh, but it may be fair to say that as we learn more about some of these other officers, that Titanic's officers were not very well disciplined in a time of crisis, and we'll um, learn that we'll learn more about um, how that was evidently true. So, um, at 12:45 a.m., boat number five is lowered down into the uh, water. But there's only one problem. But there is a problem, rather. Boat number five was filled only to one-third of its intended capacity. So if the uh, primary 16 lifeboats could be filled to roughly have 65 people at best, 65 at full capacity, and only a third was intent and only a third was filled to its intended capacity, folks. That means that probably no more than 33 people at most were um, were uh, placed onto that lifeboat, and that lifeboat gets launched. So think about it, folks. That lifeboat could have put at least another 30 people. Many women, and most notably wives, refused to be separated from their husbands. This is another reason why the boat got low, did not get filled 
to one-third of its intended capacity. Lifeboat number five would be the first lifeboat departing the sinking Titanic. Had wireless operator Jack Phillips's mood began to change come, uh, one come around 1.15 a.m. on April the 15th? Yes. Well, given for one, he hadn't heard from Carpathia in nearly an hour's time, but secondly, Phillips knew deep down inside that Titanic most likely did not have another four hours to live. Given that time... Given that time frame was what Carpathia's crew advised it would take. I mean, when he spoke to um, Harold Cottom, California's wireless operator, around 12.15, Cottom said, uh, through based upon what Captain Rostron advised him, he said we could get to you all in about four hours, even though it's you know 50, we're 58 miles away, but it's going to be about four hours at most. So, to think that this is the closest any ship is going to be to us, it is not a very good feeling. But at the same time, you know, uh, Jack Phillips knows that Carpathia is going to do everything she can to make every effort to get to the, the Titanic as soon as, as quickly as possible. Jack Phillips uh, kept... Uh, tapping away for any sign of hope that another ship nearby would come to Titanic's aid in enough time. Phillips got a message from the Olympic at 1.25 a.m. Only, and this is where Jack Phillips loses it. I could see how one would be incredibly overwhelmed given that, you know, not only am I the individual on borrowed time, but everybody else on the ship is on borrowed time and there's a good likelihood that we may not be looking at hours. We might be looking at less than an hour, minutes, before we all meet our inevitable fate, our unintentional fate. Well, I don't know if I'd say unintentional is the right word. Did a lot of innocent people deserve to die on Titanic? No. On the other hand, should Captain Smith, and this will be discussed in another podcast, but I might as well just mention it now, and it, it will, this will probably be mentioned in another podcast segment, but I think it is fair to say, did Captain Smith and the wireless operators and the crew, did they make a really good effort to heed the warnings that were given to them by other ships? <laughs> and one of those warnings happened to be from a ship known as the Californian, uh, the answer is no. Cal uh, Titanic uh, did not do a good job of taking the warning seriously. Yes, it's tragic she hit an iceberg, but could she have avoided it? By all means. Uh, is it fair to say that if she had hit the iceberg straight on, that, few, that less than four of her watertight bulkhead compartments would have flooded? Uh, yes. Is it possible that if she hit the iceberg straight on, that she would have um, still remained afloat without any potential of uh, possibly sinking. It's very possible. We'll never know if, it, if that was 100% definitive in terms of a yes, but it's a very good, there's a very good modified likely chance that Titanic might have been uh, spared if she had just hit the iceberg straight on. So, uh, Yes, Jack Phillips kept 
tapping away for any sign of hope that another ship nearby would come to Titanic's aid in enough time. Yes, he got a message from Olympic at 1.25 a.m., but um, the Frankfurt, uh, the Frankfurt's operator um, unintentionally uh, interfered. Phillips lost it. He flat out lost it emotionally. He removed his headphones from his ears only to shout, You are jamming my equipment. Stand by and keep out. He just couldn't take it no more. Captain Smith kept checking on Phillips every few minutes. At quarter past 1 a.m., power started to fade. At 1.45 a.m., Jack Phillips called Carpathia to say, Come as quickly as possible, old man, mean to Harold Cottom. Engine room filling up to the boilers. Water is coming in everywhere. No end in sight. Although uh, Carpathia uh, Captain uh, Arthur Rostron and his crew had done everything, there was um, preparation assembly-wise, did Captain Rostron still show signs of concerns? Yes, he did. And a captain does have a right to express signs of concern or fear, but if there is one thing a captain cannot do is he cannot let the fear get the better of him. If a captain allows fear itself to get the better of him, it will um, doom his ability to make proper decisions, use uh, good proper judgment. Basically, the captain himself will cave in to pressure to where even he cannot function in times of um, great distress. So yes, a captain can express his concerns but he must show signs that he is still uh, in control, that he still has the means to make the necessary and appropriate decisions. He also has the need, the means to listen to those around him, being, being the crew of his inner circle, like, you know, the first, second, third officer, depending on the size of the ship and how many crew below him uh, that make, the, make up the inner circle. But yes, Captain Rostron did show signs of concern. For starters, he would be taking his own ship into an area surrounded by ice fields. Surrounded, yeah, surrounded by ice fields. Uh, secondly, once Carpathia arrived around Titanic's position of 41.46 degrees longitude north, 50.14 um, degrees latitude west, could the ship become close enough to where intervention itself was doable without interference from ice? And not just ice, but drift ice, ice that has come off of, say, an iceberg, ice that has come off of glaciers but has not formed into an iceberg, but it is uh, just um, moving loosely to where if a ship is moving too quickly and it doesn't spot the uh, drifting ice, that the ice itself has potential to damage um, to damage the uh, to damage a ship's uh, structure to where a ship could experience internal problems like what Titanic experienced after she had hit the iceberg. And not just drift ice, but field ice, large. Um, when when I say field ice, it's a um, 
large terrain of ice that could be miles long. You know, we, we could be talking field ice that could be up to 30 miles long. In other words, a, a whole territory swath of ice where, okay, you might dodge one, one position of ice or one um, field section of ice, but you go a couple of miles ahead and you've got another big section of ice. So it's those things that concern um, Captain Rostron because, you know, it's one thing for Carpathia to get close enough to where she could spot the Titanic, but if she is unable to intervene and help Titanic because of the presence of um, drift and field ice, it will, those features alone could hinder a ship's uh, means to come to the uh, full um, rescue of the uh, ship that is in grave danger of um, of the inevitable being that of sinking. Harold Bride, uh, Titanic's other wireless operator, uh, did relieve Jack Phillips, whom saw firsthand for himself that ocean water was now sweeping over the ship's foredeck, making its way past, past the foot of the uh, foremast to flooding into the uh, forward uh, well deck. Jack Phillips now realized that Titanic's survival was based upon minutes versus hours. And if I was in Jack Phillips' shoes and saw the extensive flooding that was occurring, I would have to say, too, that Titanic's survival is now all about minutes, not hours. For Jack Phillips to make that um, assessment that it's minutes versus hours, now that reminds me even more so of Gordon Lightfoot's famous line or his um, one of his famous songs, but most notably The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald and um, in a verse where he says, does anyone know where the love of God goes when the waves turn the minutes to hours? In this case with Titanic, one has to wonder, does anyone know where the love of God goes when the um, when the waters are sweeping over everything uh, that the ship itself would have to offer in terms of um, not just from a viewpoint but for protection uh, purposes. That's just my take on it. But but still, when the uh, waters are turning um, the minutes to hours, you know, the the uh, the the flooding, the wrath of the um, of the flooding, it's the flooding's uh, destruction internally, and how um, the ship's no longer becoming buoyant, meaning it's no longer able to stay afloat. Yeah, all of this is happening in minutes, folks, not hours. Did the situation on board uh, Titanic become more dire as lifeboats became scarce? Okay, let's be prepared to listen to another um story that happened or incident it's very frightening but it happened but the answer is yes the situation on board titanic titanic became more dire as lifeboats became scarce one incident saw a large group of male passengers attempt their way onto lifeboat 14 titanic crew um a Titanic crew person drove them back only for 5th Officer Harold Lowe to point out his revolver and say the following, If anyone else tries 
that this is what he'll get. In quotes again, if anyone else tries that, this is what he'll get. Officer Lowe fired three shots along Titanic's side. This is not a very safe way for your crew to be operating in a time of distress. Yes, there might be a protocol of women and children first, but as lifeboats are becoming scarce, I think it's fair to say you may need to start doing away with the protocol and that all lives aboard the ship need to be valued. If you're on borrowed time, you need to start making some exceptions. But for Officer Lowe to fire three shots and threaten passengers, that doesn't really uh, bode well. It might sound cheesy for me to say this, but it doesn't, very, it doesn't bode very well for customer service. Of course, nobody had the time to write a complaint to White Star Line, considering what would eventually happen. But the fact that an officer is threatening passengers and using violence in terms of firing three shots, yes, he might be trying to restore some order, but the situation is dire. It just makes no sense, but it sadly happened. And if that's not bad enough, folks, how about this one? Second officer, Charles Lightoller again, spotted a large group of men, both passengers and crew. We're not just talking uh, passengers. He spotted a large group of men, folks, not only just passengers, but crew. All of them were huddled together in boat two. Well, sadly, Lightoller's anger, his rage took over where he shouted the following in quotes, Get out of there, you damned cowards! I'd like to see every one of you overboard! Even to, the, to his own, uh, even to those below him who worked, on, who worked on the Titanic, his crew, for him to talk that way, how could you be so despicable and hateful in a time of crisis? Well, all the men got out from the boat and fled the scene immediately. Well, I would have been fleeing for my life as well. And after the firing of after firing off distress rockets, fourth officer Joseph Boxhall got 25 women, one male passenger from steerage, which would have been third class, three crewmen. Gee, I wonder if these three crewmen may not have been um, huddling together, may not have been huddling with, um, with non-crewmen. Who knows? But three crewmen, along with a male passenger from steerage and 25 women, all got into lifeboat number two. 29 people. Once again, one-third less than full capacity. And I don't know how many men... Um, both passengers and crew were already huddled together in boat two before Charles Lightoller kicked them all off. But if there had been, say, another 20 or 25 men or, or another 20 or 25 passengers aboard, at most we would have been looking at between 50 and 55 passengers total on lifeboat number two that would have um, saved a few more people's lives at best. Ignorance is really showing its uh, worst here, folks. Especially on a ship that was deemed unsinkable. Ignorance has shown at all levels, but ignorance is showing, is showing its, ignorance is being, 
has become very prevalent even in a time of crisis when trying to get passengers onto lifeboats. This is not the way to make passengers feel comfortable. Did Carpathia passengers, interesting, here we are on passengers, but did Carpathia passengers realize that certain things weren't exactly right come after uh, 12 a.m. of April the 15th? Yes, for starters, uh, one passenger named Mrs. Annie Crane got up from her bed at 1 a.m. only to be smelling fresh brewed coffee. That would seem a little bit odd at 1 a.m. Secondly, Mr. and Mrs. Lewis Ogden, this was a very interesting couple, and they're going to be mentioned a little bit here um, before this uh, podcast um, wraps up, but uh, I've read a lot about them in this book and they were uh, quite an interesting couple they weren't um, a they weren't a bad couple but they were one of those uh, couples whom uh, demanded answers and they weren't going to go away empty-handed so mr and mrs lewis ogden awoke from their sleep due to not having enough efficient heat making its way through the ventilation uh, system along with hearing multiple sounds pertaining to uh, getting lifeboats assembled and ready to go. On, on one hand, if I were Mr. Ogden, I would, I would find it very uh, strange to hear um, the sound of lifeboats being assembled because the first thought that would come to my mind is, hey, is there something wrong with our ship? If there is something wrong, how come I wasn't notified? Well, the Ogdens also spotted stewards and stewardesses uh, carrying an assemblage of blankets and mattresses. This, to the Ogdens, was not a good sign. So, one thing, another thing I could think of if I were, um, if my wife and I were Mr. and Mrs. Ogden, is that perhaps uh, steerage could be experiencing a problem with its um, heating system or uh, other internal uh, issues. And perhaps the same with second class. So it could be that perhaps the Carpathia crew, being the stewards and the stewardesses, are doing everything there is in their power to make the proper necessary modifications. We'll find out more here uh, shortly. However, by 2 a.m., by 2.10 a.m., 10 minutes after 2, on the morning of April the 15th, all of Titanic's lifeboats were gone. Okay, so all the lifeboats have been launched and the ship itself is minutes away from going under. At 2.10 a.m., Captain Smith advised Jack Phillips and Harold Bride, Titanic's wireless operators, that they had done their duties. They had gone above and beyond and done their duties. I would have to say that they had. And it was around that same time that Jack Phillips tapped out two V's, the two V's were for testing purposes, kind of like we hear sometimes people say testing, testing, or testing, testing, one, two, three. At 2.17 a.m., a ship known as the Virginian heard a low-level sound, CQD, CQ, low-level, but all of a sudden it ended very suddenly. At 2.17 a.m., the last known wireless transmission was submitted 
by Titanic's wireless operators, it would be the last known wireless transmission anyone ever heard from the Titanic. Folks, at 2.17 a.m., the Titanic has officially sunk. And, of course, many people for years believed that she sank in one. Of course, this is a whole other um, topic matter for a whole other uh, time. But for years, people thought she sunk in one piece, but she didn't. People now know, especially after what Dr. Robert Ballard and his crew discovered, they saw firsthand that the Titanic, she had split. They, based upon uh, survivors at the time who had actually recalled watching the Titanic split apart in open air due to all the water that she had taken in, that her watertight uh, bulkhead compartments could no longer, um, they could no longer sustain uh, water getting into the boiler rooms, water just making its way everywhere um, to the point where the ship ultimately just split in two. Getting back to Mr. and Mrs. Ogden, they were uh, frequent travelers and in the midst of what was taking place were very determined for truthful answers behind what was already unraveling in front of them. Mr. Ogden made his way past the corridor and out a side door onto the upper deck where he asked the quartermaster on duty what exactly was happening. The quartermaster said it had to do with the Titanic and immediately told Mr. Ogden to get back to his cabin at once. Other passengers were soon to be told of what was unraveling with Titanic. Everybody aboard Carpathia that learned of this was in total dismay, pure disbelief. If I was aboard Carpathia and learned that Titanic was in trouble, yeah, I, I would be in dismay. I mean, think about it. So many people have been told that this ship is unsinkable, nothing can happen to her, no matter what would uh, be in her way, she would find a way to outmaneuver it, outsmart it. <laughs> well, I've said it before, I'll say it again, and I'll probably say it a few more times before this podcast series um, ends. No matter how sophisticated man's technology is, no matter what he can do to modify all things unexpected, it's probably fair to say Mother Nature is going to have the last uh, say when it's all said and done with. I'm beginning to think Mother Nature might have already had the last say, not just so much for when Titanic had struck the iceberg, but now that Titanic is gone. We have, I hate to say this, but uh, Mother Nature played a big part in Titanic sinking. By 2.20 a.m., Titanic uh, completely vanished, but, we're, but what remained left were the cries of hundreds of passengers pleading for help as water temperature plummeted to 28 degrees Fahrenheit. The cold itself was so bad to where one could die in 20 minutes. Can you imagine, folks, not having gotten on a life, not having been able to get on a lifeboat? Yes, you could be wearing your life jacket. Yes, that might be keeping you afloat. But if that water being uh, temperature being at 28 degrees or just below, you're on even... You, not only are you on borrowed time, but borrowed time, we're not talking hours, folks. We're talking 20 minutes at best. So think about it, folks. You're stranded out of the middle of the North Atlantic, and you have to wonder what could possibly save us 
as our lives are hanging by a thread and we're and we might be talking between 10 to 20 minutes before our before we breathe our last uh, breath of air how many lifeboats how many of titanic's lifeboats do you all think uh, came back to attempt uh, searching for survivors only one only one lifeboat went back Fifth Officer Harold Lowe, who fired shots, he commanded uh, Lifeboat 14. He went back to spot where Titanic had gone under. He pulled three survivors from the icy waters. The cold, frigid temperature sadly had taken everyone else whom perished above. And those whom perished experienced death rapidly. The cold temperatures would have uh, frozen, would have froze people's hands, their feet, their heads, to losing full consciousness in minutes. Bodies would have been floating motionless to where they eventually moved out into the open waters of the North Atlantic. That's how powerful this temperature alone. And not just the temperature, but what the temperature itself could do to people internally. It's like a thousand knives had stabbed the inside of their bodies without having any chance to fend off to fend off all all the uh, hidden internal elements. It was a terrible way to die. What did Carpathia surgeon uh, Dr. McGee detect around 2.40 a.m.? He spotted a light being green in color from the distance, and given the night's conditions, visibility worked to Captain Rostron's advantage, where after spotting the green flare, he and 2nd Officer Bissett detected the first iceberg only to soon after spot a second and third iceberg. Extra lookouts paid dividends for Captain Rostron by having these extra lookouts along the Carpathia's bow and the bridge. Captain Rostron had helped prevent Carpathia herself from meeting the same tragic fate which got bestowed upon Titanic. In other words, the more lookout men there were present, the greater the detection of spotting icebergs sooner versus later meant all the difference between life and death, given they had um, made an improbable journey 58 miles southeast of where they were to venture all the way north to where Titanic was uh, stationed around the time of hitting the iceberg at 4146 degrees longitude north, 50.14 degrees latitude west. After 3 a.m., uh, Captain Rostron gave the order to start firing multicolored rockets, including diversifying things up with Cunard Roman candles every 15 minutes. At 3.30 a.m., Carpathia was getting closer to Titanic's positioning place, but Captain Rostron knew deep down that he and his crew had more than likely arrived too late, given the last communication from Titanic's from Titanic being wireless operator Jack Phillips's message at 1:50 a.m. 
had read, Come as quickly as possible, old man. The engine room is filling up to the boilers. Harold Cottam, Carpathia's wireless operator, advised Rostron, advised Captain Rostron that the flares spotted were not from the Titanic. Well, if they're not from the Titanic, what were those flares? Well, sadly for Captain Rostron and his crew, the sad thing is, is that given the fact that they were at the position of where Titanic had reported being, um, where Titanic had reported being struck by the iceberg, that was 41.46 degrees longitude north, 50.14 uh, degrees latitude west. Nothing could be spotted other than darkness. Other than just darkness itself, folks. If all they could spot was darkness, Captain Rostron and his crew had to come to a painful realization that Titanic had completely vanished off the face of the earth. She, she was gone for good. I can't imagine being in Captain Rostron's shoes knowing that, yes, we may have made every valiant effort and we, we, got, we, we did the improbable by going 58 miles. But, we, but time was just not on our side. Could there have been, I'm also wondering for if Captain Rostron was thinking to himself, couldn't there, could there have possibly been another ship nearby that might have been able to have gotten there quicker than we did? Who knows? Because we have to remember in 1912, there is no such thing as a 24-hour wireless uh, communication operation system where wireless <clears throat> communication must be um must be um, working aboard a ship uh, 24 hours where communication remains constant. If I'm not mistaken, I told you all earlier that Californian had sent Titanic an ice warning. Titanic had received six ice warnings on um, April the 14th, and one of them was from Californian. Where was Californian all this time, folks? But if I'm not mistaken, didn't her uh, wireless operator, um, Cyril Evans, shut down for the night at 11 o'clock on the 14th? Uh, yes, he did. Did Cyril Evans do everything he was able to do to warn uh, Titanic's wireless operators of ice, uh, of the presence of ice? Yes, he did. So we can't fault Cyril Evans. The bigger question is, who's to blame I have a good feeling, or rather, I have a good hunch or inclination of whom we ought to be blaming. But what I will tell you this, folks, is that when I'm on the air next, we're going we're gonna to learn um, more about what was going on with the Californian in the hours after midnight of April the 15th. We need to find out if the Californian was closer to Titanic versus Carpathia, and if so, why in the world did Californian not make one single effort to come to, to come to the aid of the Titanic? Because I have to wonder, we all have to wonder, if Californian, if the Californian knew just how serious 
Titanic's um, pleas for help were, and possible, and knowing that Titanic did send off um, rocket distress signals, is it fair to say that if if Cal if Californian crew had seen rocket flares go up from a distance, that they should have notified their captain? There are just a lot of things at this moment that don't add up right. But when I'm on the air again next, the mission or objective is to uh, try to uh, dig into those uh, questions and hope to be able to come up with some reasonable answers. What I do know is that Captain Arthur Rostron is a hero, in my opinion. He ought to be uh, given lots of accolades and awards for going above and beyond to... Um, to heed the call of duty, and even though he and his crew have come up a little bit short, but they cannot be faulted for making every good faith uh, effort and trying to pull off the impossible in terms of coming to re coming to the rescue of of the world's largest ship that has now um, that has now completely vanished from the face of the earth. Well, thank you for your time as always, and I look forward to being back on the air here again soon. And uh, thank you for being such ardent listeners. Uh, without you all, I'm not sure where I would be, but you guys um, really make this um, all the more worthwhile. So uh, thank you uh, for being such great listeners. Take care, and wherever you all may live, uh, continue to stay safe.